Welcome to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and podcast all over the WWWs. We are the dogs, the defenders of government schools. We're here to keep you company for the next hour with issues, news, views and reviews um, and interviews uh, relating to public education, um, the support of public education, the defence of public education because we are the defenders of government schools, D-O-G-S. We defend it because it's attacked, um, often and often by the strangest people. But it has its defenders, like us here at the Dogs, Jane, myself and Dale, but also Jane Caro, Angela Gavrilatis, Patsy Stolberg. Um, all these people are also defenders of government schools, and we'll be playing you an interview that was done for the Gonski Institute a couple of weeks ago, which we find particularly pertinent. Um, also in these COVIDness times, the way private schools have set up their business models is to prey upon the aspirational in good times. In good times, there's a bit of spare money flowing around, so why not spending it? Spend that money on making sure your child gets a head start in life over your neighbour's child. Who cares about the education for the masses? Let's just care about the education for your child. And as Gene would say, the devil take the highmost. That's been the basic business principle of advertising for private schools in Australia for the last 30 years and more. For the last 30 years, however, the government has been subsidising, and more, has been subsidising private education with taxpayers' money. Uh, we think, just in very simple terms, that money could be better spent on educating children in schools that are open to all, rich and poor, black and white, Calathumpian, uh, Muslim, um, gay, whatever. It, state schools don't care. State schools have been living the dream of lack of discrimination since the turn of the last century, really, um, whereas private schools, by definition, are the opposite. Uh, to discuss the, the response that the private school system has to an Australia which is not necessarily going to be living in good times, to a world in which money is short and getting shorter, to a world in which spending excess money on your child's education to make sure they get a slightly better one than your neighbours um, is not necessarily a good business decision. And so, Jean, um, we'll be talking about this in a press release. Press release number 855, um, which is the 855th press release, because there's 854 before it, all available on our website, www.adogs.info. But we'll be talking about a particular article written by a fellow called Shanassi, um, a bit after that, because Jen will be referring to it, and then we'll get stuck into some other people who want to defend government schools. But for now, I'd like to introduce Jean, and um, to, to, to do her world famous dog's <laughs> press release. Well, here you are, 855 on the AM, on the, um, on the website, press release 855 at adults.info. Um, what happens to private schools in a failing market economy? History only moves the way it is pushed. In the 1970s, at the very best time in Australian history for levels of equality, 
things were so much better between the end of the Second World War and the 1970s in in terms of equality in Australian um, society. In this time, the denominational Irish Catholic system inherited from the 19th century was in trouble, big trouble. The public system was also under resource, but not so badly. But the Catholic system depended upon the unpaid labour of nuns and brothers, and they just weren't joining the church anymore, particularly after Vatican II liberalised a lot of the thinking in the Catholic Church. And they had unqualified teachers in their schools so that when they were in this big trouble, they reverted to an 18th century monitorial system of teaching in overcrowded classrooms. The wealthy, well-resourced religious schools, the schools with the pools, we called them in those days, they were, they always have been, and they always will be, just fine. Before any public funds trickled down to the disadvantaged in Australian schools, however, those schools, the schools with the pools, demand their proper privileged share. For the first time in Australian history, with the Whitlam government and the Carmel report in 1973, there was a chance, a chance to take over the sectarian denominational system and place all the nation's children in a well-resourced public school like those that we see in Finland and other countries that now lead the world in educational quality, resources and also outcomes. Instead, a failing system designed for the 18th century unequal society was resuscitated. It has now, with preferential taxpayer funding, expanded to the point where taxpayers are expected to pay almost completely for a ridiculously expensive sectarian system which duplicates public facilities. I should add there they are not, the taxpayers are not paying completely for the wealthy schools that charge fees of up to $40,000 a year. They are potentially independent. Now how did all this happen? How did Australia, which has this wonderful egalitarian myth, get to this point of extreme inequality? It's not just me saying this, the OECD and UNICEF says this too. In the period 1973 to 2020, that's in the last 50 years, Social Democrats, the members of the Brahmin left in Australia, have lacked intestinal fortitude. They lusted after a thing called the Catholic vote, in the same way that people like Joel Fitzgibbon Today, I noticed from the ABC News, from the Hunter River, he's in the Labor Party, he's now lusting after the coal miners' vote, at the point where we are in a climate change disaster. So these social democrats, these Brahmin left people, ran scared of being called sectarian 
for actually opposing a sectarian system. The wealthy have always had to be paid off before any resources trickle down to the poor and abandoned classes. In fact, the wealthy and the powerful regard education for the poor and the abandoned classes as, at best, a mere charity. But because of the facing both way policies of what Piketty calls the Brahmin left, because of their, their, their performance in these last 50 years, levels of inequality in both the educational and broader society have increased. Disadvantaged children have always been and still are, the 85% of them, in public schools. Their champions, beside us of course, are the dedicated teachers who work under sometimes quite appalling conditions and they get blamed every way which way by so-called outcomes of educational testing. But we are in times of plague and the times, they are a-changing. We, the dogs would like to refer readers to a very interesting book by a man called Walter Scheidel. It was published in 2017 before the plague started and it's called The Great Leveling. In this scholarly and ambitious book, Scheidel argues that economic inequalities are usually narrowed most effectively as a result of cataclysmic events, war, revolution, the collapse of states and natural disasters like plagues. Be careful what you wish for, he writes. The suppression of inequality was, on the historical evidence, only ever brought forth in sorrow. And Scheidel dubs those four cataclysmic events, war, revolution, the collapse of states and natural disasters, the four horsemen. It's referring there, of course, to the four horsemen of the apocalypse in Revelation. And he explores the causal relationships between them and the emergence of mechanisms that significantly redistribute wealth not just in the societies that we think we know, such as Western European modernity, but those that we rarely consider, like pre-conquest Americas or the Dark Ages in Europe. So at this time, while we are all locked down because of this plague, the dogs suggest that we think in the long term and we think big. So we wait with interest to see how the denominational system, which still depends upon the ability to select students on the basis of their parents' income, will fare in this time of pandemic and depression. But we're not the only ones that have got something to say about this. Not everybody takes the view that dogs doesn't do, of course. But Paul O'Shaughnessy in The Age in the last week 
can sense the fact that these private schools that have mushroomed in the last 20 years on taxpayer funding have got some problems. Because they depend upon a healthy market economy and its ideological underpinnings. And as this market economy collapses, how are they going to treat their clients and customers? As those same clients and customers, who are actually real people, you know, they've got blood running in their veins. They're not just um, something that you get money out of. They're parents and children. As these real people look around them with their denuded bank accounts, they will find a free service in public schools. Dogs suggest that the neo-liberal market economy, the invisible hand of a mythical god of mammon, has not served our next generation well. And it's now in a state of collapse. And the only thing between our children and educational disaster is the much maligned public system, which we have fought for all these years and which is still there and in its own way flourishing. It's to be hoped that the Brahmin left will not flee to their sectarian holes but seize the opportunity at this time to finally nationalise the denominational system and force wealthy schools to become genuinely independent. So that was the main part of our press release. Thank you very much, Jane. There's a lot there to think of. I particularly like the concept of the Brahmin left. It just fits particularly well in Australia, I think. Uh, the Brahmin left, you know, tend to sort of shuffle off to a Steiner school or some Montessori place and get the taxpayers' monies that way. It's, it, it's, an, interesting, it's an interesting premise. Um, after the break, which we're about to have, because I think we need one to process that very, very interesting press release, um, I'll be continuing on with the actual words of Paul O'Shaughnessy for what used to be the Fairfax Press, now it's just the Channel 9 Press. But he... Yeah, He's writing an article that couldn't have been written ten years ago, wouldn't have been written five years ago, and now must be written because circumstances demand it. But um, I won't keep you in too much suspense. We'll be back with the Dogs Program after this. The media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth, and the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning, well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at 
the type of psychological warfare and spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in. It's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media as a warfare against our people, and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR eight five five on the AM dial and podcast all over the www. Available at well the 3CR website. You could be listening to us through. If you're not, you can, um, 3cr.org.au. And if you might, if, you, if you're really dedicated, you might be sitting there on the dog's website going through Gene's press release with, with bated breath um, on, on www.adogs.info. And, yeah, so with having said all of that, I'm going to tell you what Paul O'Shaughnessy said in the Channel 9 media. Um, it was on August the 16th, so just last week. It's interesting that these questions of what's going to be after are now real questions. Um, so many people were just trying to deal with what was put in front of them, but now there's this, what, do we want to get back to the normal we were before? Or do we want to get back to a new normal, a better normal, a rethought normal where it's fairer for more people? I think the whole wearing of a mask thing, not for yourself, but for others, that idea of doing something every day for someone else has actually started to perhaps change the way Australians think about not just themselves in, in, in the nation, but about who we all are. A simple, generous act of putting a mask on every single day reminds us that we are. We are a group of people called Australians, and we shall be. And what are we going to do? for each other into the future. And Paul O'Shaughnessy asked the same question. He says, the relationship between parents and private schools has always been complicated. Private schools almost never refer to their families as clients or customers, yet families pay for a service that is available free elsewhere. Stories about how poorly, how poorly many families have been treated, both during the admission process and while attending school, as many in demand schools haven't always felt the need to adhere to the adage, the customer is always right. 
And Paul himself has encouraged a large number of parents disillusioned with the treatment they received when inquiring about positions for their child at overflowing private schools. The consensus is that they were made to feel as if the school was doing them a favour, by even considering them. And this treatment often continued throughout the child's education at the school. Many schools have been in the position of having massive demand for their product. But will COVID-19 change the way schools see themselves, market themselves, and how they interact with the public? Suddenly, the unattainable might be attainable. And this will affect the parent-school relationship, the price, or even exactly what is offered at these schools. Estimates of a drop in enrolments at private schools of 5 to 10% due to COVID-19 seem, on the face of it, quite conservative estimates. For smaller girls' schools, a drop in enrolment could spell disaster, given their, prolifer- their proliferation and already relatively small student numbers. The effect on school scholarships will also be fascinating. Many private schools facilitated pro-rated refunds during COVID-19 to compensate for many of the offerings they aren't able to provide during remote learning, such as sport, camps, musicals. In many cases, parents have had to teach their child during remote learning. The hiatus from normal schooling has prompted a lot of parents to question the value of private schools. And it will be interesting if changing economic circumstances will bring a much closer scrutiny by the parents of the schools in terms of value for money. Now, I was going to stop there because not once in this article has, have, have I used the word education. Not once have I used the word learning, which is interesting because you don't need those words when you're talking about private school. You talk about money, you talk about value, but only in the broadest possible terms. Education and learning are just part of what value is when it comes to private schools. I think that's fascinating. Similarly, from a school's point of view, they have to look seriously at their cost structures and offerings in order to make ends meet. Will they return to largesse of pre-COVID, or will we see uh, leaner schools with different offerings. But will we see the same level of marketing, scholarships and extracurricular activities? Some activities, such as overseas trips, may not be possible for some time. What happens with fees will also be fascinating. The market is unlikely to tolerate fee increases in the short and medium term. Now, what I can tell you about is that we will be seeing a move to lower fee schools as parents cut spending. Many of these schools are about 75% cheaper than the high fee schools and will present an attractive option, as many government schools will too as well. There's even a possibility that parents will take the option and engage tutors and choose for their children to play sport at club level on the weekends instead of at school. At the very least, the change market will deliver a positive change in school-parent relationships where the value of each 
is realised. I would love to do an analysis, and I might do it for next week, of how much do you have to spend on tutors to increase the value of your child's education over a year? And is that number more or less than the fees of low-fee schools, high-fee schools and medium-fee schools? I would suggest on a back-of-envelope calculation that hiring tutors, which of course address the specific needs of your child, so maybe it's a math tutor, maybe it's an English tutor, maybe, maybe it's someone that can help with their coordination for sport, specifically tailored tutors hired by the parents themselves would be cheaper than sending your child to Keylor, uh, Keylor Downs, uh, not Keylor Downs, um, either Newton High School or something like that. A medium level private school would produce less value than sending them to a state school and hiring specific tutors for their needs. That's a calculation that I think people are going to be making because that means that all of a sudden Australia starts to generate much more equity between students as they go. But those are the words um, of an article that really could not have been written 10 years ago at all. Um, and often, I think the reasons for that are pretty obvious. But there's all sorts of other interesting things going in, not just COVID-19 and all that sort of stuff. And um, I'd just like, just, just very shortly, to introduce something that Dale found. And um, she'd like to share with us as well. But um, I'll get Dale to share with us after, after this. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time, and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. People, like you said, have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. But people want full-time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave, or what's, whatsoever. Especially, you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment, they're sitting home. You know, people want full-time employment, and they should, they should be entitled to full-time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector, and all the problems that are facing people now, and all the deaths that are following. In the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, your blokes travelling around, you know. We want full-time positions and, you know, that's... And people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want them to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Welcome to the Dogs Program on 3CR855 on AMDAL podcast on www's and available at the Dogs website, www.adogs.info. Now, this next article I think is absolutely fascinating. Um, it's from the 19th century. It's just, 
Here we are in Australia. If you're same-sex attracted, you can get married now. It's all right. No one cares. Well, I'm sure you care for each other very much and very deeply. That's why you want to get married. But no one else has the right to turn up and go, that's wrong. You're just a bunch of people who are doing the wrong thing and stuff. Um, the new education bill um, is a fascinating one because Mark Latham, Mark Latham reckons that it's all about indoctrinating kids in this neo-leftist, communist, blah, 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 because if teachers support students and the student themselves, for instance, is, is bisexual or has some form of their character which is not accepted or wasn't accepted by Mark Latham, then he doesn't want what he doesn't want to be taught in a school at all and teachers should be banned from talking about gay things or lesbian things or or stuff that basically anything he doesn't like. I've got no idea what Mark Latham doesn't like because every time he talks I just shut up, shut up. I've got no idea. But... So I'm not very good. I'm not a very good person to actually share with you what's going on here with Mark Latham, but um, I asked Dale to do a bit of a deep dive into it, and she's and she's going to repeat his words to see what's what. So thank you, Dale. Thanks. I've got an article here by Mel Smith, who's the trade union training officer, titled "Proposed Education Bill Has Wide-Reaching Ramifications." Legislation was recently introduced in the New South Wales Parliament that seeks to change the way teachers support the well-being of students and the subject material that can be covered in classes. Under the guise of changing the education laws to ensure that schools must recognise that parents are primarily responsible for the development and formation of moral and ethical standards and social and political values in their children, end quote, One Nation's Mark Latham proposes that schools enter into consultation with parents about the content of subjects, including publishing content on all courses at the beginning of every year. This is despite syllabus requirements prescribing courses of study that are publicly available. He seeks to eradicate ideological instruction on matters including, quote, refugees, climate change, racial and indigenous issues, end quote, as well as those related to sexuality and gender. The bill goes further in its opposition to diverse sexuality and gender, with teachers, principals and school counsellors put at risk of deregistration should they support the well-being of trans and gender diverse students. A member of the teaching service who affirms a trans or gender diverse student's gender teaches diversity and promotes tolerance of this difference, ultimately to address bullying and harassment, or addresses bullying by explaining that there are a variety of genders, would effectively lose their job. In his speech to Parliament, Latham acknowledged that parents already have a right to remove students from classes where they objected to the content. However, he believes current laws and policy doesn't go far enough. He seeks to force his own worldview on parents and students in public education and force teachers to do this on his behalf. The last year has been very challenging for students, parents and teachers, with the impact of drought, bushfires, floods and the COVID-19 pandemic all taking toll. Through the care and dedication of teachers, schools have provided a stable and safe environment for students and their parents in these uncertain times. 
Teachers continue to create environments where young people develop and test their knowledge, skills and values and show care and respect for each other. This bill explicitly threatens to eradicate the cohesive school communities we have worked hard to create and to pit parents against the school system and teachers. This bill affects the well-being of all students. Federation opposes this bill and supports the joint statement released by the GLRL, the Gay and Lesbian Rights Lobby, today. All students and their families across New South Wales must feel safe and supported at school. And teachers must feel safe and supported both in their professional practice and on a personal level. Federation also supports the Equality Australia campaign against this bill and encourages teachers to make contact with politicians to express their concern for this damaging bill. Online messages can be sent via Equality Australia website or you can find the contact details of members of parliament online. Oh, thanks heaps to Mel Smith for, for doing what I never could, which is actually understand Mark Latham and analyse what he's talking about. We are now going to move on to um, a series of discussions between some interesting people who support education, um, amongst whom are Patsy Solberg, Jane Carrow. It's just a fascinating interview which we want to share with you right now. So listen up, folks, for this next bit. It's actually not just me or Dale Barrett, you know, parroting on the same old stuff. This, is, this, this to me is the nub of the matter. Hello, I'm Jane Carrow, and welcome to Fighting the Privatisation. I think this is a incredibly important conversation. And to that end, we have an incredibly distinguished special guest, um, someone I have admired from afar for a very long time. Her name is Diane Ravitch, and she is a long-time campaigner for public education in the United States of education. Our other two guests on the panel, which is, who is Angelo Gavrilatis, um, who is of course the President of the uh, New South Wales Teachers Federation, and he led the global response to privatisation for five years when he worked with the Global Teachers Union um, until relatively recently. Um, and of course, Passy Salberg, who is um, one of the fathers of the Finnish education system, so he must be feeling very good about himself at the moment, and is now to our great delight, um, the head of the uh, Gonski Institute at this very university and a resident of New South Wales and a parent of children at New South Wales Public School, which is fantastic. Diane's point about the renewed respect for teachers because of parents being confronted in a way they never have been before with having to do um, home learning, uh, do you think that's happening in Australia as well? Well, thanks. And, and Diane, um, it's so lovely uh, being able to join you this morning, albeit uh, virtually. Can I start off, Jane, by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the many lands upon which this telecast is being uh, received and pay my respects to elders past and present? And can I once again acknowledge um, Diane Ravitch, who's not only inspired uh, teachers and parents in her own country. She's an inspiration for us globally. Mm. She's a mentor, mentor to many of us um, globally as well. And we certainly appreciate your time um, this morning uh, or this evening for you, uh, Diane. 
Um, a big shout out, uh, Jane, for all of our teachers and principals. Uh, this is day three of term three, and it's been a hell of a year for our teachers and principals uh, in the context of COVID. Having tur- I know it sounds cliche, but having turned themselves inside out again and again and again, and far too frequently being an afterthought in all of the deliberations around COVID. Um, a big shout out to them. Um, the pandemic has changed a number of things, and I hope it will change things for the better moving forward, because it's done a few things. One, it's highlighted the worth of teachers and principals. Mm-hmm. N- not that we needed that to be highlighted, but it's certainly highlighted the worth of teachers and principals. As Diane said, there is a much deep, deeper appreciation, a growing appreciation, and I think still growing appreciation, and a deeper trust and admiration for the work of teachers and principals. That's a very good thing, and we certainly hope it lasts well beyond this pandemic. The second thing it's done, it's laid bare for all of us to see, not that many of us needed it, the deep inequalities, inequities that exist across and within our education system. Deep inequalities. Deep inequalities that we cannot go back to. So when we get through this pandemic, we're not going back to that old normal, We have a lot of work to do in order to address once and for all all those inequalities, many of which are amplified because of privatisation in our school systems. Well, um, Diane was talking about how the charter schools in America were able to double dip uh, for the COVID um, supper. We have also seen here uh, private schools getting large... uh, really gifts. I was outrageous that the federal government announced a month or two ago additional money for the already overfunded private school sectors. Mm. I'll just say one more thing though just to link it back to COVID the pandemic and privatisation. One of the things that the other things that's been occurring though has been the opportunism on the part of global ed tech companies who aren't letting, who are operating within the notion of never letting a good crisis <laughs> go by. We're seeing incredible entryism on the part of the ed techs, and we, uh, we in fact call it the ed tech pandemic. And this is via uh, uh, <coughs> things for ho- kids to do at home and remotely and all that kind Absolutely. of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. They're, 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 they're occupying a space that exists. This is not an argument against technology. Technology no. where it's teacher-friendly or teacher-led, and where the policy design and the like is teacher-led, is a good thing. Mm. But what we're talking about here is something very specific within the context of the pandemic and the role of large educational technology, education technology corporations trying to get their foot in the door opportunistically within the traditions of disaster capitalism and market creation and potentially changing the face of education, influencing policy, to, to, to in the interest of their motives, which are profit motives. Nothing marketing likes better than a problem because then they can sell mm-hmm. you a solution. Yeah. That's how it works. Has he? Yeah, well, I, I just want to add to this question of te- teachers that, you know, if there happens to be any teachers listening, uh, parents listening to this thing that, I was a teacher for many years, and it's much easier to teach other parents' children than your own. (laughs) So this kind of agony of uh, trying to make your own children uh, follow what's going in the school when when they're learning from home, it's uh, not necessarily as bad as it feels. But I I agree with both of you that 
you know, when one day when this uh, pandemic and crisis is over, that we will we will look at teachers in a different eyes, that we will see them almost as we are looking at medical uh, doctors and nurses and healthcare workers right now. That the teachers, uh, and particularly in public schools, they are the ones who will keep our children happy and healthy and, and learning as well. And that's an important that's an important outcome of this uh, mess that we are in. Just, Jane, just on disaster capitalism, it might be good to ask if Diane can um, uh, shed a bit more light on, of, on it. We have got the example um, of uh, New Orleans post-Katrina oh, yes. and what happened there where the disaster was exploited. And it was Naomi Klein who coined the term disaster capitalism. But New Orleans is a case in point. They lost their public education system. Diane, do you worry about that happening after this? Well, you know, one of the things that I worried about initially was that this would create a boom for distance learning. Mm. And certainly the, the companies, the corporations that are heavily invested in selling K-12 education online have been advertising uh, intensely. Um, but, if, but I think that parents are kind of sick of it, frankly. They don't want, they're not going to want more distance learning after having been subjected to months and months yeah. of uh, having their children home. And I know I have grandchildren who are school-aged, and, and uh, they're bored. I mean, they get through their lessons very quickly, and then they say, what, what do I do now? And because of the lack of socialization, it's very difficult because they're very limited in what they can do, and uh, they can read a book. But still, it's not the same as being in school, being with your friends, engaged in activities, having an art teacher. Uh, and I know I saw an article this morning that a young journalist wrote um, in one of the Bloomberg publications saying that the pandemic is going to lead to a boom in homeschooling. Um, I think it's quite the opposite. I think that uh, parents are going to say, I've done this. I don't want to do this anymore. I, I, I want to go back to my own work. The children should be in school with other children. And uh, the last thing I want is homeschooling. So I don't think we have about 2 million out of 50-some-odd million children in the U.S., 2 million uh, are homeschoolers. And many of them are uh, do so out of religious motivation. Uh, they don't trust the secular culture uh, or the, non, the non-sectarian culture. And so I don't see that sector growing as a result of this. I think I just hope that, that there will be a, a sea change, a sea change in the appreciation for the importance of schooling, for the importance of experienced teachers. And I have to say, the other, the flip side of that is that I fear that the negative side of this pandemic is that many older teachers will retire early because they're literally afraid for their lives. And in the U.S., at least, they're being pushed to go back to school when the schools are not safe. And rather than go back and risk their lives, they'll, they'll retire. And uh, a friend of mine in one state contacted me the other day, and he said 20% of the, print, of the superintendents in his state have retired. It, no. The pressure on them no. to open schools when the schools are not safe uh, and, and the, the requirements of having a healthy environment are simply not there is too much. And so I think that we're, we may lose uh, a large number of highly experienced and highly professional veteran teachers. Uh, but that, I think, just puts more pressure on those of you who are teacher educators 
to uh, raise the banner and say, we've learned how important teachers are. They should be paid as professionals. They should be paid as well as other professionals. And we shouldn't bring people into the classroom unless they're committed to making teaching their work and not just a stepping stone to something else. Yeah. You asked uh, Angelo about disaster capitalism in New Orleans, and I think that's a good question. Uh, New Orleans in 2005 was devastated by a, a Category 5 hurricane, which is the worst hurricane you can get. And it did tremendous damage to New Orleans, but the pieces were already in place before the hurricane to begin privatizing the system. What it needed was this one massive disaster where so many people were had to leave the city, uh, and, and fleeing for their lives. And uh, the system was transformed. The first thing that the uh, new bosses did, uh, that is the state legislature, which was dominated by white men. New Orleans was, is a primarily uh, African-American city. But the first thing they did was to fire all the teachers and all the staff. 7,500 people, most of them African-American, and most of them women, and they were the backbone of the middle class in New Orleans, and they were, they were all fired summarily. Some of them got their jobs back, but the, uh, the template for reopening was to turn the public school, close all the public schools, or almost all the public schools, a few remained open. Uh, it, it's now an all-charter system. Uh, but all the schools in New Orleans are now run by private organizations uh, who are free to hire and fire teachers at will because the legislature in addition to firing all the teachers, eliminated the teachers' union. Mm -hmm. So th that's what this is all about, is get rid of the teachers' union, fire the teachers, start fresh, bring in, uh, we have a group called Teach for America, you probably have Teach for Australia, uh, and these uh, theory there is that any bright young college graduate will be a good teacher, and that's simply not true. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that ma that's made Finland the envy of so many uh, countries is that they demand professionalism, and they would not permit uh, un unprepared or ill-prepared, inexperienced young people to teach other people's children. So I think that uh, the bottom line, and I write about New Orleans and Slaying Goliath, is that uh, it's one of the lowest-performing cities today and one of the nation's lowest-performing states. Louisiana is a very, very uh, poorly educated state, does very poorly on the national exams. Um, and about half the charter schools in New Orleans are considered failing schools. So there has been no miracle there. It's the it's kind of held up as the ideal of privatization because there are no public schools left. There is no teachers union, and yet half the schools there are failing schools, and they're almost the failing schools are almost uniformly uh, uh, all uh, non-white children. It's it's very interesting that you talk about the the aim of the privatization is basically to avoid paying taxes to impose neoliberalism as much as possible because I kind of get it. If you are talking about uh, market forces, you know, that the market can solve every problem, the big sticking point is in the education of all children because children are not disadvantaged through any of their own doing. They are disadvantaged <coughs> because they were lucky or unlucky in the lottery of birth and some kids are advantaged. So they haven't earned their advantage and they haven't deserve their disadvantage. So it is the major sticking point in the neoliberal market forces, merit will out, you know, blah, 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 nonsense. So 
sorry, I'm exposing my bias. I think it's <coughs> infantile nonsense, that argument. Um, it's the truth. Yours, yours is the truth, Jane. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Jane, Jane, are you familiar with the book The Rise of the Meritocracy by the British sociologist Michael Young? No, but I'd better get it. You should, you should get it because uh, it was written uh, many years ago when, and when he did it, he, he brought out a new edition sometime in, I don't know, the 50s or 60s and in his introduction, he said that uh, we shouldn't rely on these standardized tests because they, they reflect family income and the success of the family is then reflected in the child. And he said <coughs> people are likely to become arrogant when they get high scores and they think that they're smarter, that they deserve to what they get in life, and the people who get low scores deserve nothing, and the people who get low scores think that they deserve nothing because of these <coughs> tests. And he says, in reality, the people who get the high scores are members of what he calls the lucky sperm Sperm club. (laughs) Absolutely. I know a few of those. Um, (laughs) But it seems to me that this is the nub of the problem, that if you have that philosophy about I'm superior because I'm wealthy and that, you know, prosperity, theology, all that kind of stuff is playing into that, it's where public education and the education of all children is where it sort of bangs up against something. And so there is a real attempt to literally, as in New Orleans, um, dismantle it, get rid of that particular problem. Is COVID going to help us to fight back against that or is the jury still out? Absolutely. Look, let me put it this way. We didn't need COVID to help us fight back, because that's what we do. Yeah. If you don't fight, you lose. Yeah. We fight, we fight, we fight, and there's no nobler cause for every teacher and principal than the defence of quality public education for all yep. and the campaign against privatisation. Greatest idea humanity ever had. We, did, we didn't need COVID, but COVID having put the spotlight on inequality and the impacts of such on the opportunities for every child, you betcha. We're going to fight some more. But, you know, you know the other thing is that if, if we look at the, the, what has happened in these countries, uh, mo- most of the countries until now with this COVID thing, is that almost every nation has relied on the advice of the experts, health and yeah. medical experts, in what to do next. Yeah. So what we can, if we learn from this, uh, this crisis that in education, when we are f- fixing our education systems, we have to listen more the experts who really know what's going to happen. And in this country and many others in the United States, you know, education reforms and policies has been based on politics or ideas of some individual people. Or ideology. And, 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 you know, this is where my, my kind of a hope is, that if we understand that any complex system like health or economy or education requires expertise. And, and, and that's why, you know, the amazing thing is that the OECD that people often refer as an authority in the global evidence, OECD has been telling for the last 10 years very clearly to all the governments, including here and the United States, that the market mechanisms is a bad idea in education. There's no successful education system in the world that is, has built its kind of a success and and, and glory around the, the, the kind of a market ideas that we are seeing here in the United States and many other countries. 
Instead, the OECD is emphasizing the importance of equity, the fairness, the public education. If you look at the, the world-class systems right now, they all share the same thing. They are strong public education systems, and they, they all have been driven by this idea that the best school for each and every parent's child should be the neighborhood school. Yeah. And you cannot have that ideal if we, are, if we, if we kind of believe that you can run the education system like you run the business. Yes. And, and, and that's the kind of a thing that let's listen to not only our own experts, education experts, but also the, the international authorities that have much more kind of a big picture, big picture knowledge. Than and I don't know, the evidence. Would yeah. you look at the evidence? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is astonishing because, and this is why sometimes we highlight that even though it's incremental, we are winning. Yeah. Not, it's not only the OECD's evidence, the World Bank their own evidence, the World, De World Development Report two years ago that focused exclusively educa on education, the World Bank concludes in their own reports that privatisation doesn't work, it deepens inequality, it deepens segregation, and in fact it doesn't improve education. There's a term in political science called organised hypocrisy, and that is where actors ignore their own evidence, which is the case for the bank and, and others. Sounds like the human race. One of the things we've talked about here that COVID may also be reminding us of is what education and schools are for because it got narrowed down, didn't it, to the point where it was all about test scores, that actually it was just about, like, children were little vases and what you did was stuff them full of information which they could then regurgitate, job done. And what people are realising, and I think Diane referred to it earlier, is that schools are a whole experience. They're about socialising, they're about relationships with teachers and educators, they're about um, learning how to be with other kids uh, as much as they're about the curriculum and the stuff. I always thought the curriculum was the stuff you practice on. It isn't, you don't have to know it. You have to know how to find out about what you need to know. Um, and that COVID is reminding us of that because that's what's lacking when parents sit at home with their children and find their children are longing to get back to school, to see their friends, to see their teachers, to be part of something again. I want to raise, I want to throw a question to Pazzi since he mentioned the importance of relying on the experts. And I thought when he mentioned the OECD, I thought about the damage that's been done by the horse race that they <laughs> run with, with their Pizza. Where every, every nation wants to be first. And I, I was very impressed when I first met you when you said, well, we're first this year, but frankly, we don't care where, where we are because in Finland, we don't want, when you ski downhill, you don't want to be the first, you want to be the second. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I, you know, I, I think that there's, there's no perfect way of measuring complex systems like social systems anyway. And you know my position to, to the OECD PISA test. I think that there, there, are, there are several issues. But I also often argue that without evidence, if we wouldn't, wouldn't have any data, any evidence about other countries, we would be arguing about very different things right now. Mm -hmm. So, so that's, that's why I think the, we, we have to be mindful with the, with the fact that the data, we, we, we need some ideas, some evidence about what, what's happening, but we cannot fully rely on on, for example, the data that comes from uh, questionable uh, sources like the, the standardized assessments in the national tests. Welcome back. Isn't that fascinating? Those ideas being, being spoken about freely, those ideas would not have been spoken about freely in Australia 20 years ago. The sort of, the sort of left liberal Brahmin class would not allow those conversations to happen around their dinner tables or on their wonderful ABC or anything like that. Oh, no, no, no. 
That was actually the Gonski Institute that allowed that to happen. Just, it's worth mentioning, I think, that if you go to the podcast available on the 3CR website, the entire interview um, is available as well as part of a service. Um, also, next week, there'll be part three of that discussion. So that's worth looking forward to as well. But it's a sad time. It's come to the end of the Dogs program. We've been around for an hour. That's all we're allowed these days. But I think that's enough. I think that's enough for a week, don't, don't you, dear, dear loyal listeners? Um, and if you're new to the Dogs pro- program, hopefully you've got your fill of ideas because that, in the end, is what the Dogs program is all about. It's about the defence of ideas, the defence of public education and the defence of ideas have a very, very large overlap. But for this week, that's it for Dale, and that's it for me, Rob, and, of course, Jean. And we'll be back again next week. You can get a copy of this program. It's, the podcast will be up in the next couple of days. Not, it's not up now, so if you're really super keen to hear us again, just, just wait a few days. Um, but if you do and you want to and you have to, get hold of us, www.adogs.info, and, of course, at 3cr.org. .au with all the W's at the front as well. And as I said, sad time, but we do have to go. We'll hear you all again next week. I dreamed I saw Joe here last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill went on to organize. Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill It's there you find
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.